everybody. Welcome back to the So We Speak podcast. This is Cole Fakes, and I'm joined by Terry Fakes for an episode we have all been waiting for. We have saved the book of Revelation, not because we weren't excited to do it, but it uh, two things. Number one, it's hard to figure out how to do an overview of the book that helps the reader feel like you're navigating through this. You kind of understand what's happening, but keep it at a level that you don't end up uh, with a 10-week, 10-episode uh, podcast. Uh, and the second thing is that you brought out before is there are really deep connections between the Old Testament and the book of Revelation. And so the better you know at least the structure of the Old Testament, the more sense that Revelation is going to make to you. Yeah, I would say the best prep for understanding this podcast, understanding the book of Revelation would be listening to the other podcasts that we've done. And so in some ways, it's a fitting end to of the series, even though we have a few books left, but it's a fitting uh, final episode or final few episodes because there was a book that came out a couple of years ago by Brian Tabb called Revelation as Canonical Capstone. And I think that really captures part of the interpretive problem of the book of Revelation is it sums up and includes most of the rest of the Bible. In fact, especially in the Old Testament, there are very few books that are not at least referenced in the book of Revelation. And so a lot of times we think you need to know all kinds of outside stuff to understand Revelation, which is very helpful. But what you really need to know is the book of Isaiah, the book of Daniel, the book of Ezekiel, the book of Zechariah, the book of Deuteronomy, the book of Exodus. All of these books and these themes make up what the book of Revelation is doing. In fact, there's hardly anything new in the book of Revelation that isn't somewhere in the rest of the Bible. And that has to be our guide. And so to do the book of Revelation after we've studied a bunch of the other books actually puts us in the best position to be able to understand what it's saying. Exactly. Well, maybe the first place to start would be when uh, is this vision happening and what actually is this book? Yeah, this is one of the key questions. And as you'll see through the next couple of episodes of the podcast, uh, this one, particularly in the following one or two or however many we do on this, part of the problem with the date of Revelation is a lot of the date proposals are wrapped up in other notions about the book of Revelation. So, for example, when we lay out here in a minute the four different ways to interpret it, a couple of these necessitate a date. And a couple right. of these, if you have a date, uh, set that you think it was written in, you have to take a modified version of a couple of these views. So you don't want to you don't want to put the card before the horse and say, "Well, I'm committed to this uh, date, therefore I'm going to have to have this reading." I think it's a better way to say, "What reading do we think is the most logical, and what does that tell us about the date of the book?" Now, beyond just the internal text of Revelation, one thing that's very helpful for us in determining the background of the date is who wrote this? So uh, this is actually not as simple a question as you might think. We know that it was written by John, that some people thought in the in not in the early, early church, but in the following centuries, that there were a couple of different Johns. And no doubt there were a lot of Johns floating around uh, the ancient Near East. But was this John the Apostle, or was this a different John, uh, John that was serving in the churches, uh, a John that was more of a pastoral figure? We take, as most people in the history of the church have, we take this to be John the Apostle. So one of the things that we know is this has to have been written within a reasonable lifespan of somebody who was following Jesus, albeit one of the younger 
disciples most likely, but uh, somebody in a reasonable lifespan. That's why you see the absolute cap on the book of Revelation has to be in the 80s or early around 90 uh, in the first century. Now, some people are going to argue as early as before 70 AD, and there are reasons to believe that as well, depending on what you think the book is saying. So there's a very widespread, earliest it can be is probably in the 50s, early 60s. Um, The latest it can be is probably in the 90s. And uh, there are a lot of people on both sides of this one. Agreed. And the two, probably just broadly characterizing it, the two general dates, because of the fact that there's so much talk about persecution in the book, particularly writing to the churches in the first three chapters, the letters to the seven churches, which we'll get to, is people tend to date this between about 64 and 70 AD, because 64 AD is when Nero started persecuting Christians. And church historians tell us how brutal that persecution was. Or go to the 90s to the emperor Domitian, who ruled from 81 to 96. So pretty much what you're saying is persecution picked up again under Domitian at the end of the of the first century. So generally, before the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 AD or near the end of the first century, under one of those two emperors, generally speaking. But then the question comes, and the book tells you itself, you know, John says, I was on the island of Patmos, which we know to be a Roman penal colony, on account of the word of God. So clearly he's there because he's being persecuted. He's there because he's a preacher. And he hears a voice and he begins to see a vision. And so what what then is this book of Revelation? Is it just one big vision? Is it communicating the vision of God. Like you said, there's not, quote, new teaching in here. It's more the conveying of a message that's been given to John, more in the prophetic tradition, really. Prophecy is a great way to categorize this book, broadly speaking. It's apocalyptic literature, which has a lot of overlap with prophetic literature. You see other instances of of apocalypses in this time period. You have many that are not included in the Bible. But you also have apocalyptic literature in the Bible itself. So the the biggest examples would be in the Old Testament, the book of Daniel, the second half of the book of Daniel is apocalyptic literature. And it's probably the book that has the strongest backdrop for the book of Revelation for reasons that we'll talk about mostly next week. Zechariah has night visions, which are very similar to the book of Revelation. It's another book that has a very strong background. There is some apocalyptic literature in the New Testament. So if you think about Jesus, all of it discourse at the end of Matthew, uh, that's apocalyptic literature talking about, quote unquote, the end of the world, which we'll see is, is a phrase that can mean a lot of different things. But any, any apocalyptic literature has certain qualities to it. So it uses symbols and imagery. It predicts catastrophe. Um, it's it's uh, Some people see it as kind of a doomsday type prediction. But the name itself actually gives us a hint of what's happening in the book of Revelation. So we call it Revelation, which is a translation of the word apocalypsis, which is actually the first word of the book of Revelation. We have a word in English called the apocalypse. We tend to think of apocalypse like we tend to think of the book of Revelation as the end of the world, the future impending doom that might be happening. That's that's why we use the word apocalypse. But in Greek, the word apocalypse 
really means a revealing. It means an unfolding or something that is hidden that is now seen. And what I want us to start out thinking about in the book of Revelation is this book must have meant something then or else it would not be in our Bibles. And with that, it must mean something now or it wouldn't have been preserved. So when we go through a lot of these different ways of reading Revelation, some of them side on one side of this. It either means almost everything then, and we're just overhearing it, trying to draw lessons from it now. And in some ways of reading Revelation, it means a whole lot now and in the future, but it's hard to see how it meant anything for them then, 2,000 years ago. An apocalypse is an unveiling. It's a revealing about things that currently are and things that are to come. And I think if there's one principle to kick off the book of Revelation with, both in terms of how we read it and its dependence on the Old Testament and how we apply it to today, it's remembering this fact. The book of Revelation is telling us what's actually true about the world. That's what apocalyptic literature does. That's what prophetic literature does, is it doesn't always predict the future. It, It does do that, but it also opens up and reveals what is true, what is real in the world right now, the spiritual world, the physical world, what's going on and what we need to see. Agreed. I think that's a great way to look at it. And therein lies, though, some of the difficulty in understanding it. It is a revealing, but it's a revealing in a way, a particular genre of prophetic writing and literature called apocalyptic that relies a lot on symbols. And the Jewish way of thinking isn't necessarily linear the way our way of thinking is. And so the two interpretive approaches, I mean, just as you approach the book, you can basically take a view that's called progressive, and I'm just going to use the word linear. And that just simply means when you see chapter one, then chapter two, then chapter three, then chapter four, basically these things are happening one after another. That is a way to look at it, that it's linear. When he said, and then I saw, and then I saw, and then I saw, that you might think that those events are happening in a linear order. So that's one way to look at uh, the book of Revelation. And when we get into the views, you'll see this. It'll, It'll become very clear. But another way to look at it is cyclical, meaning the book of Revelation may be telling you the same story several times over. And that is not an unusual way for Jews and Jewish literature to speak. Uh, For example, anybody that's read the book of 1 John, that book doesn't feel like a linear story. It feels like a circle. We keep circling back to topics. And so basically, as you approach this, it's good to read it with both of these ideas in mind. Is this linear or is it in some sense cyclical? What do you think, Cole? Is that a helpful way to characterize the approach to this? This is probably the big divide between the different views. We're going to go over four and then a couple, four major views, and then maybe a couple of variations on those views. But the big division is, uh, do you think this is a chronology? You know, is it something that is a sequence of time? Or do you think in some ways it's a recapitulation or it is a parallel presentation of something that's going on uh, maybe simultaneously. And the two words to think about here uh, in terms of the way this book is laid out, we're gonna talk about the, uh, we're gonna talk about the breakdown of the book into sections in a minute and and talk about maybe those sections are chronological or maybe they're separate. But the other thing is uh, progressive parallelism 
is a way that a lot of commentators talk about this. You have the same vision multiple times, or you have visions that are occurring almost like four sides of a square at the same time, but looking from a different angle. And they are getting more intense or closer to the end of all things the further you get in the book. So you might have, if you were to think about this on a number line, you have these visions and maybe in the first one you have one through five and then you have one through six and then you have two through seven and then you have three through eight and then you have you know three through nine. And so there's an overlap in the majority of the visions, but they're getting closer to the end. So in some ways there's a chronology, but in some ways there's a parallel. And as you read this, I think if you if you just forget for a minute the outside structures that you might've learned or uh, if you come from a very linear tradition of reading this book as a chronology. If you just think about what's actually going on, it's in certain places, it's very hard to deny that this sounds exactly like something I heard earlier in this book. I wonder if we're talking about the same thing. Right. And this may be a good time to break it down into some big pieces. And there are a lot of ways to break it down. But in my experience, what I'm about to tell you is this, to me, most useful way as you're reading it, to break it into four major pieces. And so chapters one through three is a revelation to John, and it is a message from Jesus to seven churches in Asia. And so uh, in when I say Asia, I mean modern day Turkey. And so the letters to the seven churches are chapters one through three. Now, there are different ways to understand what that is, but that's what the first three chapters are, are doing. Then in chapter four, you see John seeing a vision of heaven, basically, the throne room. And from chapters 4 through chapter 19, there are, there are a number of visions in there, but that big chunk is what we typically call the tribulation. It is a judgment of God on unrighteousness. And inside it, you have three sets of of seven judgments. So as you're reading chapters four through 19, you're going to read about seven seals being opened, seven trumpets being blown, and seven bowls being poured out. So three sets of seven, chapters four through 19. Chapter 20 is basically about the millennium, the thousand year reign. And uh, when does it happen? What is it? There are different views on that. And then finally, the fourth section, chapters 21 and 22, talk about a new heaven and a new earth. So letters to the seven churches, chapters one through three, chapters four through 19, what we typically call the tribulation, a set of judgments, chapter 20, the millennium, chapter 21 and 22, a new heaven and a new earth. That's a great way to break it down. Those are the big divisions. You'll notice some natural contours around those spaces. There's a pretty even break, especially between chapters three and four, uh, right at the beginning of chapter 21. The other thing that that's important to look for, and you can get really granular on this within this bigger framework, is certain repetitive words that divide up the book itself. So here's a couple of examples, but if you read through it in any big swath, so let's say you sit down and Revelation is a long book, but let's say you read the first 10 chapters, maybe in one sitting, you would recognize that there are certain opening and closing phrases that mark right. off different sections of the book. So one of the big ones is in the spirit. There are four visions in the spirit in this book, and they correspond almost exactly to these bigger divisions you've just laid out with one, one little exception. 
in chapter one, verse nine, there's a vision on Patmos in the spirit. So it says, and uh, when John was worshiping, he saw in the spirit a vision. In chapter four, verse one, there's a vision in heaven. There's a door open in heaven and there's a throne room scene. In chapter 17, he's taken up and he sees a vision in the wilderness. And then on in in chapter 21, verse 10, he sees a vision on top of the mountain of the New Jerusalem. So this corresponds pretty closely to these big divisions. Uh, but there are four in the spirit phrases that should should cue you to think something's shifting here. A couple of the other ones to look for is after these things. So after this or after these things, something happens. This, ha- this, this occurs a lot in the book of Revelation. These are smaller frameworks, but... The phrase metatauta in the Greek is translated a couple different ways. They're not always consistent, but that phrase is a marker. That we're moving on to something else. Uh, another one would be, and I saw. And this occurs mm-hmm. like 30 plus times in Revelation. So this, this happens a lot. But and I saw usually means you're about to get a different image or a different reference. So sometimes you're moving to a new image like a beast or bulls or a throne and then sometimes you're moving to a different reference. Like there's a there's an Old Testament parallel here. And I saw this. We should be thinking Isaiah chapter six when we see, you know, when, when we see Isaiah move into a throne room scene, much like we see John move into, or uh, when Daniel has the little book, or you know, all through the Old Testament, you're seeing these visions, and a lot of times they're set off by and I saw or and behold I saw then I saw yeah. this. Note in your mind, okay, we've got something new we're adding here. And you can do this on a very, very small level or a big level, but it helps you to get a little bit of the framework of what we're doing here in the book. You know, and if you are a visual person uh, like I am, I'm looking at my Bible where I've taught Revelation several times and read it several times, and I've got a couple different colors of highlighting going on. But one of the really interesting things is just as you come across these phrases, highlight them, the ones that Cole mentioned. And then as you flip through your Bible, you literally can see a pattern kind of jump out at you from, from the Bible. So don't be afraid to, to highlight, to look at sections. I think a lot of times the headings in your Bible, depending on, of course, the headings are, are just man-made, but they can be useful sometimes. Uh, but look for those phrases because that's what's in the original text. And that's what John and the Holy Spirit are using to be dividers, if you will. Most of the natural dividers in any text in the New Testament are certain phrases that tell you we're changing topics, or I'm summing up, or I'm about to see another vision. So I think that's really helpful. Let's get into a couple of ways that people read this book and maybe start to categorize a few of the approaches to reading this. And I I think, you know, this is something that I think you've done and laid out really, really well. If you go back to a couple of the series that you've done on Revelation, you can teach the entire book laying out these four pr- predominant versions of interpreting Revelation. In fact, I think your last series or maybe two series ago on Revelation is the most watched, most listened to series you've ever done. I mean, thousands of people have watched this and, and listened to your lessons and still listen to it. It's just a fascinating way to look at this book. If you can keep that structure of these four interpretive grids going for the entire series, you can read the whole book in these different ways. 
Um, it's helpful to know how people historically and currently look at this, how the different views match up. Um, so go ahead and walk us through a few of the different ways to read this. Great. Uh, chapters one through three, each one of these four sections has different points of view. So chapters one through three, these are literally letters from Jesus. If you have a red letter Bible, most of this will be read. This is Jesus speaking to seven churches. And the big question that will, will uh, determine your point of view is, are these seven letters to seven literal churches at in the first century and should be read like the book of Ephesians or Colossians or any other letters in the New Testament? Or is this, because it is apocalyptic literature, are these seven churches somehow symbolic of all churches at all time? Kind of like the Enneagram, you know, is, is are you a Pergamum church? Is your church a, an Ephesus church? So the, that's the two different points of view for chapters one through three. And we will come back to that in depth. In chapters four through 19, that tribulation or the sets of judgments, the three sets of seven judgments, the key question there is, when do you think these events that are being described, all these woes, all these terrible uh, cataclysmic events happening in chapters four through 19, when do you think those are happening? Well, if you think that all of those events have already happened in the first century or maybe with the fall of the Roman emperor, uh, the Roman empire, that's referred to as a preterist view, P-R-E-T-E-R-I-S-T. -E -E and all that really means is these events have already happened in the past. If you think that chapter four through 19 is some kind of Da Vinci code thing that's basically a secret map of the entire history of the first coming of Christ to the second coming of Christ, that's called a historicist view, meaning it's a roadmap of all history. And we are somewhere today in chapters four through 19 in terms of the events happening to the church. Or you could answer it in a third way. You could say, actually, all of chapter four through 19 has yet to come. It's futurist. It's going to happen in the future. This, by the way, is the most popular, uh, popularized view. And it is not only is chapter 4 through 19 in the future, it's a literal seven-year period in the future. Then the fourth view says, wait a minute, wrong question. This has happened over and over. It's actually symbolic. It's telling you truths that have happened over and over again. So you really can't ask when did it happen or when will it happen? It is literally happening the whole time. So that would be the way I would characterize the four major views, trying to answer the question, or depending on your point of view, when did these things happen? Any thoughts on that, Cole? Yeah, those four views are really helpful in understanding what to expect from the book, providing a little bit of uh, an interpretive lens for how you read the book. I, I think there are several popular uh, people for each of these. The most popular, as you mentioned, being the futurist view. This, in, this encompasses the dispensational view, which would be Dallas Theological Seminary, places like that. But it also encompasses the uh, historic premillennial view, which is uh, something that somebody like D.A. Carson or John Piper 
they would be historic premillennialists. And they they are futurists. They're not quite the same kind of futurists as a dispensationalist, but they share a very similar interpretive grid. Somebody like a preterist is actually using a pretty similar grid. They just think it's happening at a different time. They think it's happening in the lead up to 70 AD. The right. historicist and the idealist are actually using different interpretive lenses. They are not as concerned about matching what's happening in Revelation with specific events that are happening in the same order, in the same way, with the same symbols. Instead, they're viewing the book of Revelation as talking about some of these more timeless and repetitive truths that are happening. The historicist obviously is a middle way. They think that it is a recurring motif for history. A lot of the reformers, for example, were the historicist right. view. Luther, Calvin, other reformers, they thought the popes were the Antichrist and right. uh, the beasts and Rome. And so they're interpreting it through their own time period, but they realize that this has happened over and over again. Whereas the idealist is is looking for timeless lessons or recurring motifs that happen in history. And they're actually not concerned about the time frame that this might match up to. So there's some underlying assumptions in each of these views that make them either more or less similar. Uh, I, I like to look at the uh, dependence on the Old Testament as the basis for reading the book. And you can do that in several of these views. If you say, okay, the visions that are occurring here are the same visions either corresponding to similar time periods or the same, the same visions expressing similar truths about the world as we see in the rest of the Bible. And, and like I said, you can do that and be a futurist. You can do that and be a partial preterist. You can do that and be an idealist. It's harder to do that and be a historicist, but you can do it in a recurring historical look. Right. Uh, but that's a commitment I think everybody should share in interpreting this book. Yeah, and that's here's an example uh, of what we're talking about. I'll just give you one simple example. If you're a preterist, you probably think the Antichrist was Nero, Emperor Nero in the 60s. That's, I, I'm, I'm painting with a broad brush here, but that's a very typical way to look at it if you think it all happened before. If you think it's historicist, as you said, Martin Luther, John Calvin, they thought the Pope, the, the papacy, really, the Catholic uh, hierarchy was the problem. And that's the Antichrist. If you're a futurist, you think an Antichrist is going to arise at some point in the future and do a lot of the things in chapter 4 through 19. If you hold the symbolic or idealist position, you think there have been many Antichrists. In a sense, any ruler that has pitted him or herself against God and persecuted God's people throughout all of history has been replaying this theme of the Antichrist opposed to God. So again, it's they're all saying this is true. The question is, how do you read it? And so a preterist and a futurist are going to read it in that linear way we talked about. This happened, then this happened, then this happened. The historicist, and especially the symbolic view, is going to say, no, he saw the visions in a particular order, but as far as how that applies to reality, it's not linear at all. It's much more cyclical. So you can see how your approach is going to affect the way you read this. I personally think there's some value in looking at it through all of these lenses. And as you read it, it's helpful to think about it in a linear way. And it's helpful to think about it in a cyclical way. Yeah, there are benefits to being able to put on these different lenses and different uh, hats almost and, and say, okay, if this is what they believe, then 
why would I either agree or disagree based on what this text says? Now, I think most people probably who are listening to this are most informed on the book of Revelation by something like the Left Behind series. And the Left Behind series has been hugely popular. It's, uh, it, it's, it's been a very... Uh, it's been a very successful way of encapsulating the book of Revelation through a specific lens. And uh, while I don't think that there's, uh, I don't think that there's anything necessarily wrong with that lens, you just have to know that if that's kind of the way you think about Revelation, it's going to tell us about these future geopolitical events. We should be watching for the end of the world with these countdown steps. That is a way of reading this book. It's not the only way, and throughout history, it hasn't been the predominant way, but it is our predominant way in 21st century America because that's had such a profound effect on the way we read the Bible and the way we read prophetic literature. Right. I would agree with that. There have been fashions, and I don't mean that to be in a trivial way, but there have been fashions throughout church history as to how people have looked at at the book. I have a preference, broadly speaking, that it goes back to something you said, Cole, that however you understand this book, it needs to be applicable to Christians of all eras. Uh, I'm not saying God couldn't have given us the book of Revelation, and it's only going to be applicable to a certain group of Christians who are going to live at some point in the future in a seven-year period. I mean, God could have done that. But if you think about it, Christians have have read this book and drawn huge comfort for 2,000 years. And so I, I tend to have a bit of a bias that there needs to be something, as you opened with, that this book is written to all Christians of all times. So whenever these events happen, there are still important lessons and issues in the book. Let me play one other framework on here before we dive into the first part of this that I think is helpful. And it's something that you hear a lot of. And uh, it exists, it kind of coexists with these four ways of reading, but it's slightly different. And that would be uh, stances on the millennium, which would be premillennial, amillennial, and postmillennial. And these, these words can be a little bit confusing, uh, but the prefixes let you know that certain people think, premillennialists think that most of what happens before the millennium, so that's chapter 20 and beyond in the book of Revelation, is going to happen chronologically in history before Christ reigns for a literal thousand years. This would be futurists. This would be dispensationalists, classic premillennialists. Then you have amillennialists who typically believe that the millennium is not a literal thousand years, but the church age, which goes for an indefinite amount of time. We're in the church age right now. From the right. day of Pentecost, or some some of them believe from the day of the destruction of the temple in 70 AD, we are in a church age where Christ actually is reigning in a concurrent time frame with the tribulation. Um, sometimes what you hear is premillennial, amillennial, and postmillennial just refers to whether or not the millennium is before or after the tribulation. You also hear pre and post-trib. That's mm-hmm. kind of a futurist way of framing this. For, for the others, that's why I like pre-mill, amill, post-mill. Amillennialists do think that there is a progressive parallelism, uh, that there is a concurrence right. in these events. Post-millennials believe that the church age is going to happen, and it is going to literally fulfill the prophecies of the Old Testament and of the book of Revelation in the church. The Great Commission is going to be fulfilled. The church is going to reign on the earth, literally, before, 
and there's some disputes in post-millennialism about how this happens before what we see at the very end and second coming of Christ. Some of them really do believe that we will find ourselves in the new Jerusalem, in the reign of Christ, on this earth without a big cosmic break like we think of in the second coming. Now, the other reason this is important is a lot of times we talk about revelation, we talk about the rapture. And the rapture is really only something that premillennial and futurists interpret in the book of Revelation. Right. So that's where you get into, does the rapture happen before tribulation, pre-trib? Does it happen mid-trib? Does it happen post-trib? And then you have the millennium after that. So, and then we can, we can really split hairs on this. But I just want to bring this up because amillennialists and postmillennialists typically don't believe in a rapture. Because they believe that things are happening concurrently, they believe that the second coming is actually the very end of all of these things. Tribulation, reign of Christ, other things that you see in the book of Revelation are actually going to all happen before that. And then we will be on the new heavens and the new earth with God forever, as you see in that closing vision. So there's a lot of different ways to splice this. Some of them do line up. Uh, one, one thing I was going to say is if you're a post-millennialist, you pretty much have to be a partial preterist. Now, how much part of the preterist you need to take, how much happens before 70 AD, they dispute about that. But if you're going to be a premillennialist, you almost have to be a futurist, uh, full-fledged futurist. If you are a post-millennialist, you really need to be a partial preterist of some kind. If you're an amillennialist, you can see this working out several different ways. This is just another set of lenses to bring to the text. You brought up a good point there that we ought to mention, because as people read through the book of Revelation, they're going to be a little disappointed because they're going to go on, where's the rapture in here? Yeah, <laughs> and, and, and it's not. I mean, in the sense that that word is not there. And so I just here's the way I like to explain the rapture so you don't feel like Christians are arguing over something hugely important. But the fundamental difference on the rapture is if you are a futurist, and you are a premillennialist, meaning you think most of chapter 4 through 19 will happen in a seven-year period in the future, and then there'll be a thousand-year reign of Christ, you generally understand that there is an event called the rapture, and that it is separate from the second coming of Christ when he judges the world. So a rapture would be Christ comes down into the air, takes the people who are alive at that time, who are faithful, off the earth, then all the bad stuff in chapter 4 through 19 happens. Then Jesus comes in the, quote, second coming. All the dead are raised and the judgment happens. If you do not believe in a rapture, all you're really saying is that you don't believe those are two different events. In other words, you definitely believe in the coming of Christ. You just don't believe that he comes two times, if, if that makes any sense. And I'm not trying to cast aspersions either way, but I want you to know that the difference between someone who believes in the rapture and doesn't is not as dramatic as it sounds. Both believe that Jesus Christ will come, the dead will be raised, he will judge the living and the dead. Rapture just thinks he's also going to come and rescue some Christians off the earth. So hopefully that's a helpful way to think of the rapture. It it is a difference of opinion, but it is not a fundamental difference of the truth of the second coming of Christ. And I wouldn't want you to think that it was. Right. That's a good point. So let's dive into these first couple of chapters then with these distinctions in mind. The opening vision, I think, is one of the most neglected parts of the Bible. You get this wonderful vision in the spirit of Jesus Christ, the resurrected and reigning Jesus Christ. And this is really different than you see him in the Gospels. 
This Christ is the heavenly exalted Christ. And uh, he takes John by surprise. John uh, is very terrified when he sees him. And uh, this is the kind of experience you would think that you would have when you see Jesus. It's the kind of experience that the prophets have in the Old Testament when they see an angel of the Lord come. They fall as though dead. And that's how John reacts to uh, this opening vision of Christ. Agreed. And by the way, just a side note here, you probably already realized this, but you know how the Jews had a hard time deciding whether the Messiah was going to be a suffering servant or a conquering king? Is this going to be Joseph who suffered to save his people, or is it going to be David, the conquering king who rescued his people? And when Jesus came, you see the suffering servant giving himself for his people. As the book of Revelation opens, you see Jesus, the conquering king, and it brings that that whole beauty of the Old Testament. It finally brings all those threads together. Yeah, the titles, you could do a whole biblical study here on the attributes that are given to the ascended Christ. He is the Alpha and the Omega. He is the first and the last is what that's saying. He has the keys of death. He right. uh, has a voice like many waters. He has a face like flaming fire. All of these things are going back to images that you've seen in the Old Testament. And at the end of this vision, he gives instructions to John. And I think we'll probably come back to what I think is one of the keys of interpretation next week, which is in uh, chapter one, verse uh, chapter one, verse one, when he tells John that he is going to explain or he's going to symbolize these things. That's an overarching interpretive lens that'll help us in four through 19. But to get us going in these first chapters, the verse we really need to pay attention to is, is chapter one, verse 19 where Jesus instructs John, write what you see. This is an instruction from God, like what he gave to Zechariah, what he gave to Daniel. I want you to write down what you see, things which are and things which will be after these things. And that's what we have. So we believe that what John did was he wrote down the visions. They'd been passed down. And the book of Revelation is the result of verse 19. John writing down what Jesus showed him to give to the churches and to give to the capital C church. And it's in our scriptures because it's inspired by God. Yes. And as he opens chapter two, right after that, you see Jesus instructing John seven times to the angel of the church in Ephesus, write this. Then in chapter two, verse eight, and to the angel of the church in Smyrna, write this. And so seven times you see that little formula to this church, write these words. And so that's hence the section is called the letter to the, the letters to the seven churches. These are probably Cole, uh, the, the least read words of Jesus in the Bible. And uh, reading these seven letters is to me like reading the bookend of the gospels. Uh, I, I just feel like we neglect this, these words of Jesus, these instructions, these predictions, these warnings, these encouragements to these churches from Jesus himself. Yeah, let me give a little a little pushback to the quote unquote red letter uh, movement. There's oftentimes kind of a, and we've talked about this before with the letters of Paul, there's sometimes a way of reading that we say the whole Bible is important, but the red letters are really important. And we go to the place that, you know, Jesus teaches something or doesn't, and we kind of put that on a level by itself. 
the the interesting thing about that is number one, we, we shouldn't read the Bible that way. We should read the whole Bible as the inspired word of God. Every word is as inspired as the next. But secondly, uh, these are red letters. So we actually do believe these aren't, uh, you know, these, this is John telling us what Jesus said in the same way that John or Mark or Luke tells us what Jesus said in the gospels. And I just say that because the picture here has to be figured into what we think about Jesus. And as we mentioned earlier, it's really not that different than what he says in the gospels in certain respects. But if we basically summarize Jesus in the gospels through the Sermon on the Mount, for example, moral teaching, through healing, through compassion, through miracles, but we don't take into account what he says about judgment and the church and sin and his role in reigning over the kingdoms of the earth, we really don't have a very complete Jesus. And so, as you said, these are red letters. These are uh, the words of Christ. And this has to figure into the picture we think of when we think of Christ. He's going to say some really encouraging things to these churches, and he's going to say some really challenging things to these churches. And that is the picture of Christ. Christ is divisive because he affirms and he comes alongside the downtrodden. He is a person who uh, sinners love to be around. And yet here he is talking about real judgment, taking away the uh, lampstand of some of these churches, throwing Jezebel onto a sickbed if she doesn't repent. I mean, telling these churches, you really need to get serious about this false teaching in, in your midst. Uh, all of these things are in our picture of who Jesus is. And one of the best ways to understand him is to read these letters and say, this is what Jesus wants for his church. This is what Jesus wants for his individual churches. This is what he wants for his people who are working towards a Christ-like life in the church together. That's going to be really informed by these seven letters. You know, one of the things I do sometimes is I don't necessarily come and read the whole book. Of, I mean, I read through it, of course, in my read through the Bible in a year plan. But there are times I'll just come read the first three chapters. And I, I'll tell you what I take away from me from it is first, the first chapter is so encouraging. You see such an exalted, powerful vision of Christ. And then as I read to these seven churches and you see the warnings that maybe convict me, you see the encouragement that encourages me. This chapters one through three is actually a good standalone read. So I would just encourage you that you don't always have to read the whole book of Revelation at every sitting. These first three chapters are just beautiful in and of themselves. Yeah, that's a great place to start. And for this first time, let's end there. And next week, what we're going to do is we're going to go through keys of interpretation. We're going to move into this second section, starting in chapter four, looking at the meat of the flow of the book of Revelation. What are these trumpets and seals and bowls? Who are these witnesses? What should we take away from the vision on the mountain? The, the, what should we take away of the harlot who's on the beast? What city is this? What, you know, Where are we and what does it have to do with what we're doing now? So let's start by understanding these views. Read these letters, which will be a good setup for next week when we talk about the keys to interpret the book. Thanks for listening to the So We Speak podcast. If you like what you hear, go ahead and leave a comment, leave a review, email us, tell us what you like about it, tell us what you'd improve about it. Thanks to all you guys who are listening, and we'll see you next week on the So We Speak podcast.